episode 188, Lifting Pharma Credibility and Trustworthiness with Certified Medical Affairs Teams. Today, I speak with Will Solomon, PhD, BCMAS, and President, CEO of the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs, or the ACMA. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. According to an Edelman survey on trust, 77% of the people surveyed refused to purchase a product or service because they did not trust the company behind it. Pharma companies are not exactly tops on the trust scale for reasons you can infer yourself or listen to episode 148 with Jennifer Miller on the Good Pharma Scorecard. Furthermore, as with most organizations, pharma can easily become an echo chamber for a point of view that is consistent with the organization's profit aspirations. So as a pharma company, how do you become more trustworthy? Rome wasn't built in a day, but one way is with certified medical affairs personnel. Today, I speak with Will Solomon, PhD, BCMAS, and Will is the president, CEO of the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs, the ACMA. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Will. Thanks, Stacey. A real pleasure to be here. What problem exactly and specifically is the ACMA trying to solve? Before the ACMA came along, there was no uniform standard or core competencies for the medical affairs profession. And for the listeners out there that may not be as familiar with medical affairs, medical affairs is the arm in the pharmaceutical industry that's involved in generating data and also educating physicians on new data about disease state and product, et cetera. So they're really important in providing physicians with continuing education. Yet, no uniform standard exists for training people within the medical affairs profession. And that's really the primary purpose of the ACMA, is to establish minimum standards of excellence in training and certifying medical affairs professionals. And how would you quantify or qualify the difference between a sales representative who goes into a provider office and is speaking with physicians and staff and a medical science liaison? or someone in the medical affairs department? It boils down to two things. One, the individual that is working in medical affairs usually is more well-trained in the scientific or clinical background. So they might be a pharmacist, they could be a physician, they might be a PhD. So they really have a much deeper scientific medical background so that they can have more of a peer-to-peer exchange with the physician. On the other hand, an individual that's a sales rep, they might have a background in science, but they may not. And the second difference really is that a sales representative is essentially promoting product information. Their job is to get the physician to see the benefit and the value of the product to be used for their patient. On the other hand, in the case of medical affairs or for medical science liaisons, it's really about education objective education and presentation of the data, whether that data is positive or whether it's negative. So it's supposed to be a way that you're really presenting the the data in in a way that's not subjective, as opposed to what happens on the sales side. 
And is that a line which is able to be towed? Because you would think, you know, obviously medical science liaisons or MSLs, as they are affectionately called, they are part of a pharmaceutical entity and therefore subject to the goals and senior leadership dictives and sales objectives of that pharmaceutical entity. So at the end of the day, if they're saying things which are negative about the product, wouldn't that be frowned upon? You're absolutely right. And this is why we believe that it's so important to make sure that the people that are working in the medical side have some type of credential, have some type of independent third body, an accrediting body, vet them. Because to your point, especially as pharmaceutical companies have recognized that medical liaisons are very effective at getting time with physicians and influencing physicians, there are pharmaceutical companies that might be utilizing medical affairs professionals, including medical liaisons, in a way in which they should not be used, uh, in, in to, you know, to some degree in a promotional sense. So I absolutely agree with you. And I think from an ethical perspective, it's really time that the pharmaceutical industry does this, that they certify individuals to make sure that they have the core competency. Because if you ask an individual, and we did, the ACMA actually conducted a survey of pharmacists, 1,400 pharmacists across the country. We're actually going to be presenting this data at the American Association of Clinical Pharmacy, the College of Pharmacy. And we asked them, do you think you were trained properly to work in the pharmaceutical industry? And over 90% said no. They learned a lot of it kind of on the go, on the job. So what that tells us is that people that are going into medical affairs, this growing field in, in the pharmaceutical industry, they're not very well trained. And so we are, as, as a medical community, relying on these people to educate us because most physicians get their information from who? From the pharmaceutical industry, even continuing medical education. It's mostly supported by the pharmaceutical industry. So isn't it time that we as a community say, there needs to be an independent body that makes sure that everyone working in the pharmaceutical space within medical meets a minimum standard, has been assessed on knowing the core competencies. So I would agree with you. And I think you know it's something that's continuing to evolve, but we're getting more and more companies now to, to see that this is something that needs to be done. It's interesting that you say that. I mean, there's a lot of literature out there these days which supports the notion that trust is a prerequisite for a purchase. Trusting the company is that prerequisite. So if we've got MSLs who are supposed to be unbiased, who are giving information which is biased, that inherently would lead to lack of trust. And, you know, nothing for nothing. But we had Jennifer Miller, Dr. Jennifer Miller on the show from the Good Pharma Scorecard and who's got tables upon charts upon data points, which suggests that the pharmaceutical industry not super well trusted. Do you think that this could be a contributor to that? I do. I think that not having people that are formally trained, not having individuals that are verified, again, independently outside of the organization, creates not just a, a mistrust, but also can create issues for physicians and I would even argue patients. Because remember, medical affairs is involved in designing clinical trials, answering information. When physicians have questions, They'll contact the medical information arm 
of the, of the pharmaceutical company, which is typically within medical affairs. So making sure that the individuals are not just well-trained on the product, but understand things like clinical trial design, the drug development process, regulatory affairs, understanding the difference between medical devices and diagnostics in terms of regulatory and compliance. All these things are very important. And usually what happens is, and I'll use the example of the medical science liaison, because usually in a medical affairs organization, medical science liaisons comprise the largest portion of the function. Medical science liaisons typically, once they get into that role, they're trained on the product. They'll get some basic compliance training from the company itself. And there's nothing being done to ensure that this individual meets a certain standard. And I think, again, you know, for where we're going now in medicine and how quickly information is communicated, as well as the rate of exchange of information and the production of scientific information in the world, it's really important to get people that really know what they're doing and understand these different functions. I think it's only going to be a positive, not just for the industry and protecting the integrity of medical affairs, but also for patients and physicians. Matter of fact, I'll say one more thing that I think you'll find interesting. We work with what the industry would term key opinion leaders or key thought leaders. These are physicians that are well-respected, well-published in their particular therapeutic area. And many of the key opinion leaders that work with us actually are now in the process of developing a consensus statement. And that consensus statement is going to really talk about the importance of having an independent board certification for medical affairs professionals. Because remember, physicians need to be board certified, you know, especially if they want to have certain privileges at you know, certain institutions, et cetera. And their sentiment is that since pharmaceutical industry is providing so much information and education to physicians today, once they graduate medical school, they need to have this minimum competency or minimum standard like what we're doing at the ACMA. So we're excited about that because support is now coming from the medical community as well. It seems very clear that an anchor is needed. And what I mean by that is that if we're talking about a pharmaceutical company or, you know, any for-profit business entity, the intuitive fastest path to a sale is going to seem to be to present information which behooves the company to be presented, information which might be biased. That just seems very logical. It's an easy conclusion to make. But it does not inspire trust, number one. And without a professional anchor outside of the organization, in other words, this is what good looks like for an MSL for a professional who is representing medical affairs, I could easily see how the conversation, so it's kind of a tug of war. And if all you hear is something which tugs you toward the promotional direction, as an individual, it might be hard to tug back. We as an industry, we might separate out medical from R&D, from sales, but in the end, it's all one unit. From the FDA's perspective, they don't distinguish between medical affairs and sales. To the lay public, they don't really see that distinction. Uh, of course, us within the industry, you know, it's really important that we have that distinction. And that's why I think as an industry, uh, it's so important to embrace this. It goes back to my point that this really helps to protect the integrity of what medical affairs does in the profession itself long term, especially since it's grown so much. 
Yeah, I would broaden the misunderstanding cohort bigger than the lay public. You know, I was just reading a book actually written by a a physician yesterday who made no distinction. So if, if we're talking about accreditation, how do your accreditation courses work in order to help the MSLs stand firm in their commitment to providing more of a balanced view of, you know, a pharma's product? Sure. What we do is, what we've done, I guess, uh, maybe you can start with kind of how this came together. We brought together subject matter experts, advisors from different disciplines, some within the industry, from within the industry, some from academia, some from the medical world. So we really had a nice heterogeneous group to bring different perspectives to what they felt was needed for an effective medical affairs professional. What we decided was that really the core competencies that need to be included in the program needed to be the things that were impacting not just the medical and clinical aspects of what an MSL or medical affairs professional does, but also some of the regulatory compliance aspects and some of the other functional areas that are related to maybe what a traditional MSL does. So for example, we teach things like clinical trial design. What are the right types of study designs that you should be proposing within your organization? What are ways to determine whether or not these trial designs or trials are biased or unbiased? There's ways, as I'm sure you know, to design a study to get an outcome that you're looking for. So you can bias the study. And then we also include things like evidence-based medicine, where we train on how to really understand the positive aspects of the data. And in a sense, when I say positive, meaning how to try to understand the strengths of the study design, but also limitations and how to really critically appraise a paper. So I think that's really important, so that even when an organization is you know, presenting data that the uh, individuals, the professionals in the organization can objectively assess it. So we teach things like that. We teach regulatory affairs, drug safety, medication safety. We have a module on risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, or REMS, which are required for certain products which may be uh, a higher risk to patients in terms of adverse and side effects. We talk about grants and investigator-initiated study funding and process related to that. Because, of course, physicians and institutions can submit grants and can submit ideas for studies. We talk about all the regulations and rules related to interactions with physicians. And then we talk about not just the traditional pharmaceutical industry, but we also address devices, diagnostics, publication practices. We talk about appropriate interactions with sales teams. You mentioned, for example, the book that you read by a physician who didn't distinguish the two. And we talk about really what is an appropriate interaction? Because, of course, at some point, medical affairs and medical liaisons need to interact with the sales and marketing team for different things. And we talk about what's appropriate and what's not. And we're actually in the midst now of developing standards for medical affairs. These are universal standards and a guidance document for medical affairs professionals. And this really represents the first time this has ever been done in the history of the industry, really since kind of the the beginning and the genesis of medical affairs years ago. At this time, we've sort of reached 
a bit of an existential moment in the life sciences industry. You know, we've got pharma and biotech really as a sector having conversations and kind of reimagining their business model. Historically, they've been an industry that manufactures and sells medicine or devices. But there's a lot of pressure right now to become outcomes companies. That's kind of fundamentally a different business. You know, the marketplace is basically telling these manufacturers that they're not going to buy anything that isn't demonstrably better than the existing standard of care. And demonstrably better means based on an outcome that matters to providers and patients, not some raw efficacy that is not a clear proxy for an outcome that matters. How do you see MSLs fitting into that now and future? How are they evolving? Yeah, uh, that's, I think that's a really timely question because one of the modules we include is related to health economics outcomes research. Because of exactly what you just said, there's a lot more of a focus now on understanding you know, the cost benefit and cost effectiveness of a drug or a device or a biologic. And so I think that that will continue to evolve because let's face it, there's a lot of products on the market that provide very minimal value from an efficacy standpoint, and yet are priced, the pricing strategy is done in such a way where it can cause undue burden on the patient. And so I think government organizations, associations that are kind of looking at outcomes data will continue to do it. I think it'll, it'll continue to be done to a greater degree with more stringent measures because it's important for us as a society to understand really what is the value of the product. We do this in other areas, but until recently, we hadn't done it in pharmaceuticals. So a product could be approved with you know, a marginal benefit over a previous product that might be a generic. It gets approved and then you know, with very aggressive marketing, the product is priced in a certain way and then prescribed. Then you have to ask the question, really, what benefit am I, you know, am I getting uh, from the product? So I think that conversation will continue to evolve. I think actually... A great example of this is an opposite example, I would say, is hepatitis C, where in, with hepatitis C, when you have the advent of newer products on the market from companies like Gilead or AbbVie or Vertex, and they've shown you know, a pretty marked benefit in patients that have hepatitis C, basically being able to essentially cure these patients. And there's a situation where one can argue, well, yeah, the, the drug's expensive, however, being able to prevent some of the complications of hepatitis C long-term, like liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, et cetera, is worth the price. But in other areas, that's very much questionable. I think, you know, especially in rare diseases and specialty areas, this has become more and more of a focus. So I think, you know, the conversation will continue to evolve. It'll be interesting to see how much impact and how fast the value quantification begins to impact the potential to attain list prices, especially for the orphan conditions, you know, since the lifetime limits have been removed and the sky becomes the limit for prices of, of some of these orphan drugs. Yeah, it's a question mark for me. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree. And, and, and I think it's, uh, this is also, to some degree, it's a, it's a bioethical issue. This goes back to this whole idea that we need to make sure as a community that people that are working, whether it's on the sales side or whether they're working on the medical affairs side, that they're independently vetted, credentialed. 
Um, and, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the city of Chicago, for example, now requires pharmaceutical uh, sales representatives to be credentialed and actually undergo some type of education and then continue education to maintain the license. Uh, but I think that that's something that really should be extended to medical affairs professionals as well, because to your point, they're not really distinguished anyway from folks that are outside of the industry. I would submit, though, that from an industry standpoint, this is a trend that's common. The train has left the station because you said something earlier, and I'm not sure whether I agree with you 100 percent, that the information that's available out there in the marketplace comes from the pharmaceutical company. You can go on Wikipedia these days and find Wikipedia pages for drugs that have not hit the market yet. And they are not, you know, it's, it's actually illegal at that moment prior to FDA approval for a pharma company to be even talking about the medication. So that information is coming from somebody else. There's also real world data that's flying around in some respects, payers and providers might have more information about the HEOR of a particular medication than perhaps even the manufacturer does. So there is a lot of information that is pervasive and pretty compelling that's out there in the marketplace today, which is out of the hands and control of a pharmaceutical company. It's kind of the place that we are in the universe where the brand message isn't written by the brand anymore. It's written by the people that are using the brand, you know, on social media or elsewhere. I agree with you. I think what really ends up happening is that it becomes a share of voice issue in the sense that while there's a lot of information out there, pharmaceutical companies have the resources to have a pretty massive share of voice. So a lot of times, whether it's, you know, and typically it's direct-to-consumer advertising, you know, once, of course, the product is approved, they are able to get to, to the consumer's which I'm not saying is, is a negative thing, right? If the product, if there's a real need for the product, that's a great thing. However, prior to approval where maybe medical affairs is involved in kind of building the story for the disease state for why you need a new mechanism of action for treating this or that disease, again, in that, in, you know, kind of in that stage, that's really where especially you need to have people that are well-trained. And we just don't have that today over at the ACMA, how do you make sure that the information within your courses and the information that you are teaching the medical affairs professionals that are coming through your courses, how are you remaining unbiased? Well, we actually have the content updated on a quarterly basis, and we make sure that it's vetted by not just one individual, but by a few uh, for a particular module. It's kind of like, you know, uh, you're doing a clinical trial and you might have a, a central reader and then another reader for a result of a, of a certain diagnostic test. So that this way you can make sure that the results aren't biased. So if I'm a physician or, a, you know, I consider myself a thought leader, a key opinion leader out there, you know, working at a health system or seeing patients, if we're talking about someone who is actively seeking information about a pharmaceutical agent, they actively would like the information to be unbiased. You have this accreditation agency over here. Obviously, this has got to come full circle because at the end of the day, the goal of what you're doing is to benefit those individuals who are practicing medicine. So what advice would you have for those practicing medicine in order to ensure that the information that they're getting is as 
unbiased or as worthwhile as possible in order to help achieve the best outcomes for patients? Yeah, that's a great question. I've actually not gotten that question before, but I think it's really an important question. I think what physicians or other healthcare providers need to do is they really need to, when they first sit down with a, you know, an MSL uh, or a medical affairs professional, really question them first about their background, question them about the product and the disease state, really try to understand how much knowledge do they have to be able to determine, to your point, whether or not they can trust the information that's being provided. So I would ask questions and, and really be engaged and determine whether or not it's worth my time as a physician. And that's what I, you know, I always tell folks uh, who used to be colleagues of mine in the industry is that if you really are doing your job well, your physician, your KOL, your key opinion leader is going to seek you know, you out. He's going to try to, or she's going to try to want to get information from you because they see you as a valued resource. But that's going to be established really in that first meeting where you kind of, you know, you know, you know how it is. It's like the first impressions matter most. And so when you sit down with a physician, the physician really is going to, you know, should be kind of vetting that individual. And it also, there's a little level of responsibility on the physician, right? Because uh, physicians also have to act ethically and do the right thing. And I think we saw, especially with the opioid crisis, that there were some physicians, unfortunately, that weren't doing the right thing. As, you know, along with they were kind of in cahoots with the pharmaceutical companies, and of course that created a lot of issues. So it's a two-way streak. But I think what physicians can do is really take the time to just vet that individual, really to try to understand their background, make sure that they're trained in these different areas, so they make sure they're getting unbiased and objective information. I'm so glad that you brought up the opioid crisis because I was brewing up a, a question for you about that, <laughs> <laughs> that very topic. Last week, Sandra Leal and uh, Todd Yuri were on the show talking about the opioid crisis and Dr. Lippy Roy I had on in uh, May. So let me back up a second, start from the beginning. One factor of the opioid crisis that has been pointed out numerous times as a cause has been the marketing of opioid manufacturers. You know, they came right out and said that it was not addictive. There was a lot of, you know, at this point, what we know, misleading information, which was provided. I mean, it was a very elaborate endeavor. Needless to say, how might this have gone differently if all of the MSLs at some of these other entities, which have been named, were accredited through an organization like the ACMA and true to its mission and principles? So a few, a few, a few things here related to that. We actually cover for the pharmaceutical reps. So we have a pharmaceutical rep certification that, that talks about professional uh, ethics related to the opioid use. So you know, making sure that you as a, as a pharmaceutical professional are giving the right information, ethical information related to that specifically. But I think there's a few ways. One, if people had been trained properly and they really were looking at the data in a critical way, meaning the medical affairs professionals, and saw that there was a very minimal benefit and questioned that, you may not have had this crisis because they may not have went out and talked about utilizing these products in patients that were clearly it was inappropriate to use the uh, the drug. So I think that's one way is by making sure that educating them properly is going to lead to them saying, wait a second, this is kind of this is biased data. 
Um, this is data that's clearly demonstrating that you shouldn't be using it in this cohort of patients. So, so I think that's one. The second thing is really related to the fact that the system is broken in the sense that there was a great story that was written by Evan Hughes in the New York Times a few weeks ago related to one particular pharmaceutical company and the debacle that occurred there with the opioid crisis. And, and when you read the story, there's a, there's a really, he kind of writes only one or two lines about it, but it, it can be easily missed if you don't pay attention to it. And that was this, that the individual who was perpetrating some of these unethical acts at, the, at his current company did the same thing at the last company. But, you know, he was let go and then he was rehired again. And he had done it at other companies before. So here's the question. How do we prevent that? And today, there's not really a mechanism in place. But by working through the state, by working through our accrediting body, if Stacy today comes and gets credentialed and accredited uh, by getting the, the board certified medical affairs specialist certification or BCMAS certification, now you have a credential. If we're working with your company and you do something unethical, that credential will be pulled from you so that this way, if it was required at another company, you would not be able to get rehired because of this unethical behavior. So, and this is something actually the state of New Jersey, they just put a bill into the house where now they want to require medical affairs professionals and pharmaceutical reps to be credentialed. And it would be the same idea. You would get a license. Just the way a pharmacist or physician gets a license, if they do something unethical, right, and lose their license, they cannot get rehired. Same idea. So that could have been prevented by making sure that some of those uh, individuals that were unethical couldn't go and work again at another company and repeat the same behavior again. What you said, is that true? That there was data which which clearly showed, if you actually looked at it, that there was very limited benefit to opioids at that time, you know, in the 90s when all this was going on, and, and that it, it was addictive or that there were potentially pretty nasty consequences. Absolutely. And, and, and the, there's a, there was also a strong correlation to physicians getting incentives, financial incentives from pharmaceutical companies and the relation to that in prescriptions, you know, in terms of the number of prescriptions written. So absolutely. Yeah. Again, it goes back I think, to what you said. At the end of the day, we need to recognize that pharmaceutical companies, by and large, I think they try to do the right thing. But I think what you said is absolutely spot on. And there's been some data to show this. I'm sure Jennifer Miller probably has, you know, knows this data better than I, but from what I recall, pharmaceutical companies, I think they were trusted as much as like oil companies. I think we as an industry, and I, and I, and I came from the industry, and, and I love the pharmaceutical industry. I think there's a lot of good that it tries to do, but it's time that there's a third party that's vetting what we're doing, and I think that's a good thing. And I guess the question that I would have to, to the listeners who are from the pharmaceutical companies is, why not do this? What's the downside? There's never really any downside of education and credentialing. Why not do it? What's the loss? Right? That would be my question to, to those out there that are listening to this and wondering, why should I do this? I mean, I reverse the question and say, why not? Yeah, I think that if anyone is still living in a world where they feel like whatever someone says, that it's going to be received by the marketplace as an absolute truth, then, mm -hmm. you know, if you believe that, then you have every reason to put biased information out there into the marketplace. If, however, you feel like you're going to get called on it, then all of a sudden it's a game changer. So I think that's probably the pivotal question. What we're doing, if you think about it, 
what we are doing is providing a really important and influential information to physicians. It doesn't matter whether it's sales or medical. And it's to me, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy that no one has thought to certify and credential. I mean, I, I, you know, and I love hairdressers. My mother-in-law is a hairdresser. I, you know, I, from what I know, they have to get credentialed and certified and recredentialed. And so it, to me, I mean, you know, pharmaceutical professionals, people that are working on clinical trials and designing studies where they're recruiting patients, I mean, shouldn't we make sure that those individuals have, you know, know what they're doing, have done this before, or at least understand how to do it? So to me, that's crazy. And I, when I talk to deans at pharmacy schools, and matter, they tell me, they tell me, look, we don't teach this because traditionally, when you go to medical school, when you go to pharmacy school, when you go to a PhD program, you're not trained to do this. So this is really, this is an evolution in also the need now today in, in the United States and abroad to train people in a new area. And that's okay, you know, but, but it needs to be done. So if someone is listening and they want to make sure that their teams, their MSL or sales teams are credentialed in this way, where can someone go for more information, Will? They can visit our website, medicalaffairsspecialist.org. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Will Solomon. Thank you so much. A real pleasure to be here, and I enjoyed it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.